Hello, and thanks for finding us. Karam Deo is a local church in Denver, Colorado. We're a network of friends following Jesus together. Join us for preaching, teaching, announcements, and other musings. Yeah, Holy Spirit, we just almost continue in this posture of praise. And even the words today that we'll reflect on from Paul, um, they're words of adoration and praise to the reality of what you've done. And so we just invite that same posture as we reflect on his words, and, and we invite the spirit of wisdom and revelation to give us insight today. Amen. All right, so... So this fall, for those that were here or lived here, some of you didn't live here, um, but as a network of little house churches, we to some degree went through the God story, creation story up to Pentecost, which isn't obviously the whole story, but it's a good chunk of the story. And so for this gathered season, we felt to basically go through the book of Ephesians and allow almost, really it's, it's, it's this beautiful text in the New Testament where... Paul is summarizing in a lot of ways the Christian life for us as individuals and us as like a community of body. So it's Paul's understanding of what has happened in Jesus in light of all the history of the God story. And I think, I don't know if we've ever done this or if we have, it's been a while where we just picked a text and we're just teaching, preaching through it. And I think that we, we picked this months ago but I think it, it's almost timely in moments where life feels a little unstable and we're kind of sucked into that cultural moment. I think it's actually strategic to just tap into something outside of our cultural moment and just let the text dictate to us, right? So we're gonna just march through Paul's words and reflect on them prayerfully together as a church for the next six weeks. So Ephesians. Paul's eloquent vision of what the God story means for all people not only unpacks the beauty of our individual lives with Christ, but invites us into the mysterious depths of the community, the family, or the church. Uh, Chapters 1 through 3 are kind of Paul's synopsis summary of this. And then chapters 4 through 6 are more culturally appropriated implications. Okay, what does this now mean for us in light of Christ? How should we live? How should we do family? How should we do church? How should we do all these practical things? So a little context here, since I'm the first week, Paul's writing from Rome. He's very likely in prison under kind of Roman authority. And he's writing a letter back to his friends and the churches in Asia Minor or Western, modern day Western Turkey. And the biggest city in this region is a city called Ephesus. And it's kind of a hot spot for paganism. And maybe I'll talk about that more in a future week. I actually lived there for like three months and I walked through the ruins of all these pagan temples that are still there in the city today. And um, I think, well here, I'll let N.T. Wright say it. So this is a biography of Paul written by N.T. Wright. And I just felt like to give us a little introduction into Paul's world, into his worldview and his understanding of culture and time and the place he's living, I'll read this. Today, religion for most Westerners designates a detached area of life, a kind of private hobby for those who like that sort of thing. Separated by definition, and in some countries by law, from politics and public life, from science and technology. In Paul's day, religion meant almost the exact opposite. 
The Latin word religio has to do with a binding together of all things. Worship, prayer, sacrifice, and other public rituals were designed to hold the unseen inhabitants of a city, that is like the gods or the ancestors who have passed away, together with the visible ones, the living humans, thus giving a framework for ordinary life, for business, for marriage, for travel, for how to operate and run your home. A distinction was often made between religio, which is kind of the official authorized religion of a culture, and superstitio, unauthorized or perhaps subversive practices. So in these early years of Christianity, it's for sure being categorized in the broader culture as superstitio. It's this subversive, sectarian, meeting in homes. They don't have buildings. They don't have fancy temples. They don't have legitimacy in the eyes of most of the culture. Pagans or Gentiles or Jews, right? The Jewish equivalent of this was clear for Saul of Tarsus, who's a Jew, the place where the invisible world heaven and the visible world earth were joined together was the temple. And we'll talk more about that a little later. If you couldn't get to the temple, you could and should study and practice the Torah. So this is speaking to the Jews who don't live in Jerusalem anymore, the diaspora, those who've been scattered around. Temple and Torah, the two great symbols of Jewish life, pointed to the story in which devout Jews like Saul and his family believed themselves to be living, the great story of Israel and the world, which they hoped was at last reaching the point where God would reveal his glory in a fresh way. The one God would come back at last to set up his kingdom, to make the whole world one vast glory-filled temple and enable all people, or at least his chosen people, to keep and obey the Torah perfectly. So, what N.T. writes doing here is i think which is so critical for a book like ephesians because these first three chapters well we're, we're about to read it like the first section of this text uh, verse 3 through 14 in the greek it's like one long sentence of just paul rambling on it's like the guy at the meeting who you ask to pray and they just don't stop they just pray for like 10 minutes um that's kind of what it feels like and and we could almost hear it and just be like Blah, 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 right? Religious mumbo jumbo. And I think a lot of us have church experiences where the church has created almost a disembodied spirituality that is, that is separated from life. So who cares really about what's going on in your daily life? But when you come, you come to church on Sunday and you hear the word of God, it's a spiritual message about a future place. And, and then it's always left to the listeners to try and connect how that has any real implications for life on earth. And so I think that context is just, I'm going to again and again remind us as we go through this book, like Paul is saying these things. The reason he rambles on and on and on is because he's experienced the reality of Christ in his life and he can't help but praise and testify to that reality. So we're going to be, my main goal today is to try and kind of break down the duality between earth and heaven, physical, spiritual. Okay. One other quick noteworthy thing just about this book, Paul's writing to this region and there's no real issue if you think about almost all of paul's letters there's something like atrocious or awful happening like someone sleeping with their mother-in-law or some false teacher is in there spreading lies or whatever it is and paul's writing to address an issue and ephesians is a little different there's no real negative thing that he's confronting um in the background kind of subtly is a little bit of tension between jews and gentiles and i think in, in some ways, it's super relevant for us because we live in a 
cultural moment where there's like a buffet line of issues that you could be divided from other people, that you could create an us-them duality, right? So I think the hope of Ephesians is Paul's painting this beautiful vision of the church to try and show how the church is a remedy to disunity, not another thing that is an accomplice to it, okay? I'll read Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And really simple comment on those two. Paul has a clarity of his own sense of identity. He has a clarity of what his purpose is. We call it a vocational calling. He has clarity on his vocational calling. He's an apostle, which just means an ambassador or admiral. It's a military term, actually, in the Greek. He's an ambassador of Jesus, a representative of the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah who's come and fulfilled the Old Testament. And I love this. Paul has clarity on who he's talking to. He has clarity on his audience that they're a holy and faithful people. And I think there's this key foundational thing that we're going to come to in his praise and in his prayer that there's this rootedness and Paul knows who he is and he knows and sees who other people are rightly. Okay, so the first, there's kind of two main parts to this first chapter. There's this section of praise, which I'm going to read now, and then I'll give a little unpack some things. And then at the end here, in about 15, 20 minutes, I will pray the second half, verse 15 through 23, which is actually an, almost an intercession or a blessing that Paul prays over whoever's hearing these words. So I'll read. Starting at verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be a holy and blameless, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with the pleasure and his will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he's freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when times reached their fulfillment. And here's the purpose, the mystery revealed, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth. The you there is referring to Gentiles. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed you were marked with him, marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the, to the praise of his glory. Whew. So that's all one sentence in the Greek. So if y'all think I talk a lot, Paul, I don't hold a candle. Um, so, so I think the first thing I'd want to say is just like 
There's a lot going on there. There's a lot of verbs, a lot of nouns, all one sentence. And it's very tempting to detach that from life and turn it into, even in that first opening line where Paul says, um, he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And it's very easy to like disembody that and think Paul's just saying, ah, he's blessed you in the clouds with floating harps and angels, right? He hasn't blessed you on this earthly life in your human body. And we have to realize that like, that praise is the overflow of Paul's experience. For, for 20 plus years, he's been traveling around the Middle East and modern day Europe, telling people about this gospel message that he's about to explain in the next two chapters. And he's been seeing those things happen. He's been seeing people, I'll read, here's a list of the verbs in this passage. He's been seeing people be blessed, chosen, loved, destined, adopted, freely given redemption and forgiveness, lavished with love, made known, He brings unity to all things, and he has guaranteed our inheritance. Paul has lived these things. He's seen God do these things. And and I think there's like, I don't know people's background, but if you're you're a person like me, you're prone to read this. And instead of like hearing the content of what he just said, I'm immediately like, oh, well, how does predestination work? And what's the plausible understanding of human volition? And, And we can like turn it into a philosophy thing of trying to understand how this stuff works behind the scenes and if anyone wants to nerd out and talk about philosophy and volition and will and sovereignty and all that stuff i'm happy to i can tell you we can we could talk for a hundred hours and we're still not going to really know anything we might have some fun so if you want to talk about that we can go get a coffee if you're a calvinist an arminian if you're an open theist if you're anything in between if you don't even know what those words mean let's do it but I think the, the thing that like breaks my heart is that we get so lost in, in the trees that we miss the forest of what Paul's saying. Like, he's watched people receive the love of the Father, and he just can't help but talk about it. And those words, the reason those words are there, the reason it's predestined, chosen, 11, 11 of those words are all terms used to describe Israel in the Old Testament. That's why Paul's using them. He's not using them because he's trying to communicate some philosophical framework of how God's will works or how our will works. He's trying to speak to a bunch of Gentiles who don't feel like they're chosen, don't feel like they're seen, don't feel like they're God's elect people. They don't feel like they're part of Israel. And he's saying, no, this is a new covenant and it's for all people. And we're going to see later in his prayer for them, he basically says, for anyone who hears... This message is for you. So who's predestined? Anyone who's willing to hear and receive this good news. That's my, that's my pragmatic, this is how I'm going to live. Anyone who hears it, but how could someone believe or how could someone know or how could someone feel this way or receive all these things that God has done if they haven't heard about it? So let's not get lost in the trees. I'll read these again. And I'm just going to say these words, these aren't philosophical reflections. These are for you. And you can close your eyes if you want. I'd almost ask you, when was the last time we, I don't say this in a shaming way, but when was the last time we just like sat with God and we like felt this? This is what God's done. He's blessed you. He's chosen you. He's loved you. He's destined you. He's adopted you. He's freely given you so much. He's lavished you. He's made himself known. He's not obscure. He's not unknowable. I can't see. 
He brings unity to all things. He brings unity to people who are friends and people who are enemies. He brings unity. And he's guaranteed our inheritance. And the theme here, verse 9, God has made known to us the mystery of his will, his desire for humanity that maybe was obscure at one point in human history. His, his will has been made known. Thanks. His will has been made known. And what's his will? His will is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth. To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth through Christ. That's his will. That's God's will. So whatever is going on in our world, we know that's his will. It's been shown to us. So uh, whiteboard time. There's this, there's, this, there's this really awful Christian, cultural Christian idea about how the timeline of human history is working out. There, this is, I call this the fork, um, the fork mindset. And if some of you believe it, I'm sorry. I think it's wrong. <laughs> so here's creation. Then there's a fall. And then we live here. And then at some point... You'll either go to heaven or hell. And it'll be that, that differentiation will be based upon, hopefully to some degree, in Jesus. But for many Christians, I think it's actually more of a to-do list or a don't-do list. And whether or not you checked enough of those, and that determines where you go. And even if, even if we don't believe this, this is what most people who aren't Christians think Christians believe. This is, this is their understanding of what we believe. And the, I want to, I'll, I'll offer this as a suggestion, a suggested view. I call this, the, we'll call it the circle view, circles. I think a more biblically accurate understanding of the God story is that there was heaven, eternal God, Father, Son, and Spirit living in communion. And out of that love, that Trinitarian love, he could not help but creatively substantiate something out of nothing and earth is created and there's this little pocket of earth where he places a man and a woman and it's called Eden it's a land of pleasure and delight a land of intimacy and perfection and goodness but something happens separation this is our fall so here's heaven here's earth and we were reading, actually, this week, I was with Mike and some others reading part of the Genesis story. And really curious, the whole beginning of Genesis is just, it's just a mess. And then you have this guy, Abraham. And what's the first promise God makes to him? That I am going to give you land. And there's this little pocket of land in the Old Testament called the Promised Land. It's the nation of Israel in the modern sense. But it was this region of land at the center of the world. And what was the second part of the promise to Abraham? I'm going to give you land. I'm going to bless you. Why? So that you could bless all the nations. And this original mandate and vision of Eden for humans to be fruitful and multiply and eclipse heaven and earth and have heaven come and reign on earth that was broken, it's now restarting. We have new creation. So we have heaven and we have earth and they're coming together. And then how crazy the people in Israel they want to be like other nations and they try to think of, well, where do gods reside? They reside in temples. So they build a temple 
or a tabernacle at first, but eventually it's a real temple. So they have a physical building. And so this is what N.T. Wright's talking about. In the Jewish mindset, where is God? God is in the temple, right? At the time of Jesus. And Jesus comes, and what does he say? He says, the kingdom is near. Kingdom near. And it seems to be really near wherever Jesus is. And Jesus is kind of recapitulating this original vision of humanity, our bodies. We were always meant to be the presence of God on the earth. The ambassadors, the, the mediators, like Paul, an apostle of Christ, an apostle of the Messiah. Paul understands that he is a son of God. And that wherever he goes, the kingdom is near. And the vision of scripture is that one day, the hope that we, that we all trust in is that this heaven and this earth and obviously there's a lot of, we could have a lot of debates about what happens here in between these two of how that works. But the vision of scripture is that heaven and earth would become one. And, and Paul's going to talk about it in, in this prayer and in, at the end of Ephesians 1. We are his body. So heaven is not a place that we long to go to one day in the future. Heaven is the presence of God invading the earth. And one day, the hope is that there will be a new heavens and a new earth. There'll be new creation, right? And so the, the spirituality of Paul in Ephesians here, just like N.T. Wright talked about as well, it could not be more integrated in the outworkings of society, life, vocation, family, everything. It could not possibly be more integrated. It's us who live with kind of this bifurcated understanding of, of the carnal flesh and then the spiritual being this distant utopian place. Uh, uh, an eternal Chris Tomlin concert in the clouds, right? <laughs> and again, I, I understand there's some doctrinal things we could get into about it. What happens if someone dies and it's not the new age? It's not the new heavens and new earth. We could talk about all those things. There's lots of great, well, what about hell? Where's hell? And um, I'll, I'll say this. There are some varying understandings and done views on what hell is and what it will entail or how long it will go on I can say this though the picture of the God story is not a duality of heaven and hell there is one focus and it is new heavens new earth and whatever hell is it's, it's, an, it's an awful casualty of, of the brokenness of our world it's not a duality it's not yin and yang and it's not God's desire for anyone whatever it is so heaven looks like Jesus resurrected, eating fish with his friends on a beach. That's new creation. Jesus in a resurrected body. That's, that's a little taste of heaven. Jesus sitting on a beach, cooking his friends fish, and his best friend, who was just a complete bozo and screwed up, and he just looks at him and says, dude, I still love you. That's a little picture. That should be our picture of what heaven's going to be like in the new heavens and new earth. So Paul believes that the will of God before creation, at creation, and the entire time during the mess of human history up until Christ is that with pleasure and love, God considers humanity his family. He created us. He destined us to be with him and become like him, blameless and holy ones. And he's in the process of making all things new, of bringing heaven and earth together. Okay, so part two. I'll go through this one quick, and then I'm going to pray this prayer over us. So how do we like the people Paul has been doing ministry with for 20 plus years after his encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus, 
How do we come to actually believe this and experience this? Because let's be honest, all the data, all the news, all the feels, they do not tell us to believe this, right? Our, our daily life experience does not communicate this kind of message to us. What Paul just prayed and shared in the first one sentence of Ephesians here, verse 3 through 14. The world does not share this story with us. So how do we, how do we come to actually believe it? We desperately need the Holy Spirit. We desperately need the pneuma of God. And again, here, there's so many theological things we could get into, but really simply in the New Testament, there's this really curious story in Acts 19, verse 2, where Paul meets some disciples who are from Ephesus, the place he's writing this letter to, and he's talking with them, and he's like, oh, what baptism did you receive? And they're talking about Jesus, but he's kind of trying to figure out where they're at with Jesus. And they go, oh, John's baptism. John the Baptist, baptism of water, baptism of repentance. And he goes, but you haven't heard about the Holy Spirit? And they're like, no, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And Paul prays for them, and some stuff happens. I'm not going to pretend to form, make a formula for, for what the Holy Spirit looks like. Matt talked about last week, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives probably long-term looks like self-control, steadiness, commitment, reliability, consistency. That's probably the fruit of the Spirit. It's a much better indicator of the presence of the Spirit in our lives than any other thing. But it's undeniable through the New Testament that when people get prayed for and the Holy Spirit shows up, like some crazy things go on. And there's three things specifically that Paul's going to pray for that the Holy Spirit will do in us when he comes. So the Spirit offers, and I think that it's almost like a waterfall, like a three-tier waterfall. So the Spirit offers us in this kind of cascading movement, revelation. Paul prays for the spirit of wisdom and revelation or insight that we would grow in our knowledge of God. The Greek literally means that we would become fully acquainted with him. It's intimacy, not information, not theology books. It's, it's that last time you think about when those verbs that I read, that you like felt that. That you actually believed it was true about you. Or believed that it was true about someone you know, whether they're a friend or an enemy. And this revelation, this full acquaintance with God, what does it yield in us? It yields hope. It gives us access to a hope that we could not otherwise have. This is the prophetic. We talked about this a bunch last fall in the theology class that some of the super nerdy among us did, um, or I dragged them through. But we talked about how hope is this substantial thing. It's not just wishful thinking. It is, it's believing that something that's not here is more true than what my present reality defines. And we pull that future reality into the present. That's heaven coming to earth. We live, we become representatives, we become ambassadors, we become mediators of a future reality that is not true right now. But it becomes true in us. And that's the third part. It's the power. It's the power that this hope yields. And that's why it's not disembodied spirituality. It's revelation that brings hope and hope that brings a powerful life. And specifically, you're going to hear in Paul's language in this prayer, he talks a lot about authority structures and that how Christ is at the head of these authority structures. And really simply, in the ancient world, whether you believe or have this worldview or not, I would guess a lot of us don't share this in the modern day. But this heaven... It's not just like heaven, like floating around somewhere in another dimension. There's levels to heaven, like hierarchical, and then there's levels to earth, right? So here's like slaves, human slaves. Here's God, and then everything in between. Angels, demons, principalities, powers, earthly rulers, 
And what Paul is going to pray is that this intimacy and revelation with God would bring hope in your heart because you would realize that wherever you fall on this fallen, broken human hierarchy, whether it's economic, political, whatever the brokenness is that's causing that human hierarchy, we are submitted only to Christ who's at the top of this hierarchy. So we don't, we're not submitted to any of these power games. The power games that in the ancient world and are, are the, these, these lower heavenly beings are manipulating and controlling the upper earthly beings, right? That's the whole concept that kings and princes and, and uh, military leaders, they're under the power of these spirits and demons and angels. And, and again, whether you believe that or not, I think we'd all see that how influenced and impacted our emotional state is by human leaders. And whether you want to attribute spirituality to that or naturalize it and just say, ah, it's just, well, it's just scary stuff happening in Washington and it makes me afraid, right? Whether you want to spiritualize it or naturalize it, the point still stands that in Christ, we transcend that whole hierarchy structure and we're sons of him. And it gives us a hope which gives us ability to live a life of power in the present. We are no longer subject to earthly or spiritual authorities that masquerade as if they are in control. And this is why oppressive political regimes have tried to eradicate Christianity throughout human history. This is why there's two options in Nazi Germany. Great example. You either, you either eradicate Christianity or you change the theology. And you put a human mediator in between the people and God in the form of some Führer or some political leader. And I think we've probably seen that to some degree in our country in this moment and in history past where humans look to an earthly leader almost as if they're a mediator to God. And it always ends in a big embarrassing mess. So the invitation and prayer is that this spirit gives us revelation, hope, and power and that Jesus is the pattern and model for this. The, the method of the cross is not just a historical event that happened. It's, it's a method, it's an invitation of how we get to live. So I'll read Paul's blessing over us to close. Thanksgiving and prayer. Paul reads this. So this is for anyone who's trying to follow Jesus. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers. Paul has a quiet time. He has his prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, at the top of that heavenly hierarchy. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but in the one to come. So even if you're worried about it in the future, it's got the present and the future covered. And God placed all things under his feet, Christ, and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church which is his body. So we are now heaven on earth. We are the ambassadors and representatives of the kingdom of God, the fullness of him who fulfills everything in every way. Amen.
Thanks for listening. If you want to connect further, please visit us at www.cdchurch.org.